So this is the beginning of our hundredth episode on the Decarb Connect podcast. And uh, I have invited another member of the team to join me, Jack Fig, who heads up our membership activity on the Decarbonisation Leaders Network to interrogate me uh, about the podcast and all things Decarb. Hello, hello, everybody. And hello, Alex. Congratulations for hitting the 100 mark. A lot has happened in that time between episode one and episode 100, both for Decarb Connect, but also in the world of decarbonization. With that in mind, I wanted to ask you a few questions and like you said, interrogate you, but I promise I will be kind. So the first question is just over 100 episodes, what stands out for you and what are we learning about what people want? When we started recording these, it was summer 2020. And although many legislative deadlines were already in place, there wasn't a whole lot in industry. There were very few companies really then that had set targets or plans. So I suppose my my main observation about what's changed is just that the in those those early times, the conversations were much more about what could be routes forward and what might work for people. And there are definitely still companies that are still at that stage who are watching and waiting to see what works for others. But increasingly, and particularly, I think, in the last year, 15 months, conversations have been a lot more about what is happening, what te- technologies do exist. And it's more about how do we scale? And a lot more of the conversations talk about how we scale what's needed I think there's a sense that one size does not fit all. And so whilst if you read the newspapers or trade press, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it was a battle between hydrogen and CCS. The truth is what we see, and again, what we hear on the podcast over the last 18 months in particular is different tools, different strategies are going to be needed for different sites. So that's also interesting. It's just kind of like a a maturing of the conversation, I think. I I do think it would be interesting when we uh, hit that 200 mark as well to see how things have changed, if at all, if we're still kind of having that same conversation and maybe looking back on the what has happened rather than what is happening. My next question is over, is, is again about the podcast and kind of your expectations. So just around launching the podcast, what were your initial expectations of of where it would go and what how it would develop? I had no idea, really. The, the launch of the podcast happened because actually our sponsor, Jano Media, came to me and suggested it. That first year that Decarb Connect uh, launched was 2020. And as everyone will remember, we were all in lockdown. And so plans were up in the air about you know how we would get people together and how we would convene any meetings. And it was Jano uh, that suggested a podcast might be a way to just start building some stuff kind of sense of community, start sharing stories of what really was happening, give people a glimpse, especially I think, because so many of us were locked down at that time, a glimpse into pockets of activity in very different places. So honestly, I think I thought we would probably do six episodes and that would be it. I hear about the podcast all the time from people. Recent event in Canada, I uh, had someone take me to task for why we'd had this long pause. And it's fascinating to me. It's really grabbed people's attention. And it has been really interesting for me, a great way to take regular pauses in our day-to-day work, just to talk to someone for half an hour about their view on what's happening. That, again, it's beaten my expectations about what I might take from that. Um, so, so, yes, I suppose I didn't really know where it would go. I wouldn't have predicted we'd still be going at 100 episodes. I love it and I you know, hope we'll continue because I think just having these informal chats with people about where they're at and what they're focused on, I think 
gives people inspiration, but also maybe information and ideas they can pursue. Yeah, certainly, it was definitely was the correct decision to take that leap into the podcast realm. So yeah, and, and now we here we are at episode 100. Another question, actually, which is a little bit more personal to yourself um, as a podcast host, it's quite interesting to understand who you're listening to. Uh, what other podcasts are out there that uh, tickles your fancy? So I regularly listen to My Climate Journey. I think that's a really interesting podcast that looks a lot at disruptive technology. I dip in and out of Energy Gang and I dip in and out of Outrage and Optimism as well. And then otherwise, honestly, the podcasts I mostly listen to because I'm a an entrepreneur who started a small business, I listen to quite a lot more podcasts that are more about how one goes about building a business. Um, but yeah, the climate ones, Outrage and Optimism is good every, you know, as I say, dip in and out of that. Uh, but my climate journey, I would recommend to anybody. Yeah, well, I would definitely just recommend the Decarb Connect podcast. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess this is uh, looking into the future um, again, and maybe a bit more on topic about Decarb Connect and, and decarbonisation. But do you have a sense of what the conversation conversations might start sounding like moving forward as the Decarb landscape changes? Good question. I think we need to start covering more about the financing, the funding of these major projects, whether it's site-based projects or infrastructure. There's always talk about the amount of capital that's out there waiting to apply itself to big challenges. But as anyone in this space knows, it's also still relatively challenging to find the right partners to, to fund specific projects. So I think we need to talk about that more and, and help create some sort of practical steps forward there and then I think also there'll be more more about the rollout of at scale technology so as people who listen regularly will know we talk quite often to disruptive tech often companies that have a pilot maybe one or two pilots but the reality is we need to see some quick scale up and then roll out and that will present its own problems as the supply chain for a lot of technologies relies on the same sort of minerals or gases or the same materials and there'll be a lot of competition in the supply chain um, as a result so I think I think that'll be what we we hear a bit more of thank you your interrogation is over thank you um, <laughs> thank you for having me on the podcast thanks Jack and with that um, we will release our listeners to the 100th episode so thanks for listening if you like the share the podcast do share us if you're not sure about the podcast or think we could do better then get in touch with me because I do enjoy hearing from people and it really does help us sharpen up um, both the format, the questions, and it's always great to get suggestions on guests as well. So with that, enjoy our 100th episode. Like any organisation, it's getting everyone to consider carbon in their decision-making across the organisation. It's a, it's a learning angle to it um, and we're, we're giving carbon literacy training across the organization but it's also getting on and delivering the change so more than three quarters of our vehicles are now hybrid or fully electric uh, we're swapping tens of thousands of our network lights over to leds we're getting more energy efficient in our depots so there is a kind of how we transform our own assets and, and fleet uh, and reduce our emissions
Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. And today um, we're looking at a different part of the ecosystem around industrial decarbonisation in that we're coming to a buyer of uh, critical materials in the form of national highways here in the UK. And I'm joined by Malcolm Dare, who's Executive Director of Commercial and Procurement there, and Steve Elderkin, who's Director of Environmental Sustainability. And we're going to have a talk about the work they are doing to, to negotiate, to work, to contract with suppliers who can help uh, reduce the CO2 uh, ticket, if you like, around our national infrastructure. So, Malcolm, I'm going to come to you first with my standard intro question, which is, can you just give us a feel for how you've arrived at this point in time where you're working both for National Highways, but also specifically on this piece of work around more sustainable uh, roads and highways here? So from a highways perspective, we um, we're a great, we, we, we leave a legacy for the country. We build roads, we maintain roads, et cetera, and we leave a legacy. And a road is designed to last 60, 100 plus years. Um, and when you're leaving a legacy for both the country and the communities that, that use the roads, you've got to do the right thing looking forward. And looking forward is, you know, anyone that thinks decarbonisation is not an option is is probably not really listening to what's going on or seeing what's going on. And so what we're trying to do as, as the client organisation is push the boundaries as much as we can, because we will not invest in R&D ourselves, but we can catalyse other organisations that manufacture the products that we use to invest in decarbonisation. And what we can do as an organisation is catalyse those markets so we help to move the economy on or the construction industry on in that dimension. Personally, from my perspective, I, you know, I, I like every industry I've worked in, I like seeing tangible things and leaving a tangible legacy uh, in the sense of helping an industry evolve and move on is something that really appeals to me. So that's that's where I am and that's where we are as a business. And, and Steve, Steve will talk in far more detail than I would on this, but it's, it's fundamentally how do we how do we move the business and how do we move the sector uh, on in the carbon agenda? And just a, a quick background to you. So coming into National Highways, have you come from a construction background, a government background? Uh, oh, none, of, none, of, none of the above. So before National Highways, I, I'd always worked in manufacturing businesses. I, I started off running manufacturing operations in factories. Then I moved into the supply chain procurement, commercial procurement equivalent. I'd done everything from fast moving consumer goods. I've done capital equipment. Uh, I, uh, I've, I've run the supply chain for nuclear submarines and I worked for, before coming here, I worked for TALIS, being the, the, the chief procurement officer for TALIS in the UK and some of the smaller European countries. So the infrastructure of the civil world, this is the first time I've worked uh, in that industry. I've always worked in manufacturing industries, uh, which is very different, but the principles are very, very similar. But you understand, I guess, some of the, the issues that then your suppliers are, are dealing with. And we'll, we'll come to that a little later on. Thanks for that intro. So, Steve, so your role is very is very specifically about environmental sustainability for National Highways. Again, same question to you. How how have you arrived at this point in time? Well, I think it's a typical story of a furniture maker becomes a cycle path builder, retrains <laughs> as an environmental economist, <laughs> works in the government economic service, including leading the analysis for the Climate Change Act. And then in 2015, I found myself landing in National Highways as the chief analyst. And uh, a couple of years ago, this role was created. It was a more senior role than we'd had previously in National Highways on the environment. And having run one of our big projects, being the chief analyst, 
the chance to pull together the two threads, return to the environment, but in the highways context was a, was a fantastic opportunity for me. Oh, great. So in, in the pair of you on this episode, then we have someone who understands that the kind of manufacturing sphere, a range of scales, and we have someone who understands how government has come at this and yeah, interesting. Okay, well, let me start with my first official question then. And this one, this one's to Malcolm, first of all. If you could just set the scene for us. And what I mean by that is when when people think about national highways of the UK, and this has an international listener base, so you may want to give a little bit of background to what that really uh you know, what you're overseeing. I think what would be helpful is to understand what are the emissions associated with it and what's what the goals you have in place. Yeah, so National Highways um, runs what's termed strategic node road network in England, which is all the motorways and all the main A roads. And we we build, maintain, operate the strategic road network. Um, we we leave we leave a legacy in the sense, I mean, roads last a very long time and we have to do the right thing. When you look at it from a carbon perspective, uh, when we look at 100% of carbon in our environment or our sort of ecosystem, 1% comes from the business, 2% comes from the construction maintenance of the road, and 97% comes from road users. But as the road users decarbonise and you get more electric vehicles, the percentage of uh, build maintaining um, carbon increases. So therefore, we have to reduce. It's as simple as that. And we... We have to conform to legislation and we have to be continually bringing the carbon um, levels down. So what we do as a client, we, we fundamentally, we catalyze change within the sector to steadily reduce carbon within the sector. And for instance, a couple of, uh, 12 months ago, we published roadmaps for asphalt, concrete and steel. Um, and they've been developed in combination with national highways the relevant supply base and the relevant trade bodies, so people like the Mineral Products Association. And on Asheville, we believe over, up until about 2040, 2045, we believe we can reduce the carbon content of Asheville by 70%. So we can go to 30% of the 2020 baseline that, uh, that we've been using. So it's significant. So what we're trying to do is a significant shift in mindset and significant shift in uh, materials that we use, but we do it very much with the sector. This is not something we do in isolation. This is all about working collaboratively with the sector to understand where we're going, what our intent is, and therefore helping the sector ensure they've got the right products at the right time and us providing the market. So as they develop the products, um, you know, they're, they're not developing something that will never be sold. They develop something knowing it's going to be used by us as a major client. Mm. And certainly, you know, our members talk a lot about the need to understand that there are buyers out there that are as committed to procuring, you know, lower carbon intensity materials or decarbonized materials. It's as important to understand that as it is to understand for them the policy or the financing or the technology that, that underpins it. So it's really interesting to hear that you've done that piece of work on those those three main materials groups. And that and that's why we've done it. We set the roadmaps out in conjunction with the supply base in the sector so people are very clear of the direction we're going in and so as the products are coming on stream they know that we're going to create the market an example is warm mix asphalt as soon as we flipped our standard default standard warm mix asphalt the major players flipped their default standard to warm mix from hot mix asphalt and that has a significant benefit from a, an environmental a carbon perspective so they know and they have to have confidence as a client they understand the direction and we will move on what we've committed to and that's essentially if we're going to uh, if we're going to 
uh, rely on people investing in R&D to develop the products that we will need for the future. And Steve, with your environmental um, and sustainability hat on, when you look at the organisation and what you're buying and what you're doing, all organisations have this thing that there's a whole load of emissions that they're kind of quite excited about because they know what they're going to do. And then there's a, a set of emissions that everyone just really wishes would go away because they're not yet sure what they're going to do. And it's a, a grittier challenge. What What's your sense of that for your organisation? And, and yeah, how have you navigated that so far? So Malcolm's already mentioned that there's the operational emissions for us as an organisation, the construction maintenance emissions uh, and then there's the road user emissions. And I think one of the big things that changes as you move up those uh, those sources is how much control and how much direct command and control we can have around the reduction activities that happen. We absolutely need to reduce our own operational emissions, show leadership, uh, demonstrate that it's possible. Um, and uh, I think like any organization, it's getting everyone to consider carbon in their decision making across the organization. It's a it's a learning uh, angle to it. Um, and we're, we're giving carbon literacy training across the organization. Um, but it's also getting on and delivering the change. So more than three quarters of our vehicles are now hybrid or fully electric. Uh, we're swapping tens of thousands of our network lights over to LEDs. We're getting more energy efficient in our depots so there is a kind of how we transform our own assets and, and fleet uh, and reduce our emissions um for construction and maintenance emissions it's absolutely uh working in collaborate collaborating with the, the the supply chain with the with the value chain we we cannot just say make it so and it will happen there's a there's a confidence that needs to be built that this is the direction we are going in and that it's clear that to work with us, you need to come on this journey with us uh, and invest and innovate. And carbon performance is going to be important for you as an organization in terms of your profitability uh, and the amount of work that you're going to win with us. And I, I think what, what what's really heartening to see is we've, with, with the help of Malcolm and Malcolm's team, we are giving a very stable direction to the sector this is where we're going it's going to be part of your 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 performance and your profitability um we talked about um material suppliers being clear that there's a market for their materials and i think there's a couple of ways that we can we can support that so one is uh to create incentives for lower carbon delivery and then the main contractors will be looking for material suppliers that can help them reduce their emissions now two-thirds or more than two-thirds of our construction emissions come embedded in the materials that we use so this is hugely hugely important um, the second way is to say actually we're not willing to have the most carbon intensive production processes for materials used for our for our site and for our assets and again we're going to need to move in a way that is clearly signaled well ahead of time but but again that will be a pull through for those suppliers that can produce lower carbon materials and then the third area i get road user emissions our role as an infrastructure provider is to make sure that the infrastructure is there to support the transition 
the rapid transition to low emission vehicles and not least making sure the charging infrastructure is uh, sufficient in quantity and 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 functionality well we'll come back in a little while to to more of that discussion about how you work with materials producers but let me just check in with Malcolm on something so in your role in uh, leading commercial and procurement activities obviously that must be a multi-billion pound budget a big piece of this whole discussion and I guess how you're applying that budget is around supply chain transformation I'm interested to understand a little bit about you know how you've approached that whether it's the the data you needed originally or engagement with the supply chain how, how has that piece of this worked? Yeah, I mean, to, to help with scale, <clears throat> we spend about £4 billion a year. And all of that is taxpayers' money. We're funded, we're funded by the government. We're an arm's length body and we, uh, we deliver uh, our remit, which is building, maintaining and, and operating the strategic road network. Um, the approach to the supply base is very, very collaborative. You know, if we chose to turn around and say, this is what we want and walked away, well, surprise, surprise, nothing happens. We invest a lot of time working with uh, <clears throat> helping, you know, outside of the carbon uh, piece, helping suppliers develop, helping them think about how they could be more effective, helping them think about how they can make more, more profit in a sustainable way, because the better they are, the better the products, the better the quality, the better the service we will get. And when it comes to the carbon dimension, um, if you take, say, Ashdod or concrete, the bulk of what we buy comes from the likes of CRH, Holcim and Heidelberg. And they're very big international businesses. Now, big international businesses choose to invest a lot of money in R&D to, to maintain their competitive edge. And we've we've been out and visited all of their research labs um, in Europe and had conversations at senior levels around where are we going and what we're aspiring to um, so that they can understand what we're wanting to do. Uh, and therefore, they, it helps them decide where they invest their R&D money. The UK businesses bid internationally with their other compatriots for R&D funding, but if we can get consolidation of needs for types of concrete, which are then used across multiple countries, at the end of the day, we get a very good product. They understand the market uh, and they understand that we will, we will create the pool, we will create the market for that type of product. We're always looking for a minimum of three sources of supply, so we don't get, we don't get stuck with you know, a monopoly position, but we're very transparent, we're very clear. And the relationships we have now with those those three companies, as an example, are very good. I regularly talk to the UK CEOs, their, their technical teams are engaged with our technical teams and, and, and Steve's team. Um, and so there's clarity, there's understanding. It's all about us being clear on our intent and being seen to carry through that intent. Um, and if we do that and we do that successfully, we will see the products that we need coming through when we need them. We will have trialled them on the roadmap to make sure they're satisfied. Now, none of that is revolutionary. That is what many other industries have done that I've worked in. So all we're doing is really adopting what's proven in other industries and applying it to the carbon challenge within the highway sector, um, which is relatively straightforward, but um, it, we, we've got to be consistent. Um, and a point Steve made about that, that pull as well, the, the biggest recent tenders we've done have been on the Lower Thames Crossing. First time we've been out and tendered for carbon um, because it's the right time to do it and we've seen significant benefits and we've seen significant uh, reductions in, in against the, the sort of carbon baseline coming through because the supply base realized that we're very serious about what we're doing and none of it none of it is too revolutionary it's just good solid proven uh, approaches and building that collaboration and integration that we need. 
So it sounds like from what you're saying that a certain amount, obviously it's, it's a body of work that you're having to do. So I'm not suggesting it's not hard work, it is, but it sounds like it's gone relatively smoothly in terms of communicating with the supply base and this kind of these first tenders that you've been going through. But then I'm sure there are also sides of this that are challenging. Perhaps perhaps it's the areas that are out of your control. Like, you know, are your suppliers, are the technologies they're using, whether it's green or blue hydrogen or carbon capture or any of those other things, are they scaling at a rate that you, the buyer of materials, will need, let alone them, the manufacturer of material? I'm, I'm wondering what your gut feel is on that. Are you feeling confident that you will be able to get the volume of materials you need, i.e., are those technologies scaling, in your opinion, in a way that gives you confidence about you know what you'll need in future? Yeah, I, I think so, because if you take carbon capture, um, I was visiting uh, one of the Heidelberg concrete plants, which, which is going to be the first one they do. They, they, uh, they convert to carbon capture. They're going to invest a significant amount of money um, in, in developing that capability and, and, and doing it. Now, the roadmaps would indicate we need carbon capture coming on stream around 2035. And everyone I talk to is, is of the view that, yeah, that's realistic, that's sensible, because the roadmaps have not been done in isolation, they've been done with the sector. Um, and so assuming the technology plans are coming through, then I'm pretty comfortable. There will be many bumps in the road, I'm sure, there'll be many challenges, but I'm not finding anyone out there that's saying, oh, we're not playing ball, we don't want to do this, we don't see the benefit of it. Um, every business we talk to takes this extremely seriously. Uh, and everyone realizes that we've got to do it together in a collaborative way. And if we do that, what we're creating is a benefit for UK PLC, not just the highway sector. I just want to take this opportunity to thank our production partner and sponsor, Jano Media, for their support in delivering the Decarb Connect podcast. Over the last few years, they've helped us to facilitate great conversations that connect us with our audience. And their skills and expertise mean that we get to concentrate exclusively on generating the content, the conversations that engage, inform and inspire. Okay, well, Steve, let me come back to you. You, um, I know, published a, a roadmap, a, a report on kind of those core materials that we've talked about, so concrete, steel, asphalt, What's what were the kind of key points that came out of that? I mean, we've already um, kind of I guess I was about to ask you as well, you know, whether you're confident about those flow of materials. We've sort of addressed that. But in terms of the report, what, what else came out of that that you felt was significant for, for others to understand? So just how big a part of our footprint materials uh, are. And if you take steel, concrete, asphalt and aggregates, it's most of it. And then if you consider the rest of it is almost all transporting those materials or carefully placing them in on, on our sites. And so the first thing we should be thinking about around materials is how do we use less of them? Uh, and so it's a kind of a meanness or a leanness with our use of materials. And so the quality agenda, uh, durability, getting everything right first time so that you're not reworking it. All of those avoid the transport associated with the materials, all the production emissions, and that's your first best option to 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 reduce emissions. Um, I think once you're into the, the room, there are already huge efforts being and, and investments being made around research and development, and we've got our own low carbon innovation program. Um, we can join up and I'm part of the infrastructure client groups, carbon 
group and there you've got the infrastructure clients across utilities across all of the other transport family and i think it's being consistent across all of us in terms of what we're expecting for for these materials because while we're a big client we're not huge uh, compared to the volume of concrete that's produced in the entire country but if we can combine our demand signal with that of uh, hs2 network rail uh, the, the the nuclear and power industry and environment agency then that starts to become quite a significant part of that market and if we're all saying that this is the investment that we need to get uh, our to meet our carbon targets and, and the direction we're going uh, then i think that can help give the confidence for the investments such as ccs uh, and the bigger the bigger scale investments i i know um that you you've been developing this the contracting for carbon contract i'm i'm interested in how that agreement came together but also what what's the conversation like when you take that out for the first or second or third tender you know what 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 do you hear from your supply chain what do you hear from the materials producers so i've done a classic alex by bundling two questions together there but the the kind of i guess yeah, it's the the background to the actual contract itself and then what what that conversation is actually like yeah so we published our net zero plan 2 years ago and it set out uh where we wanted to go the end end target of getting to net zero for construction and maintenance by 2040 and it talked about some of the milestones along the way such as we want to remove diesel from our sites by 2030 and that means away from plant machinery and and, and use on in compounds and really the contracting for carbon policy is making aligning our contracts with those commitments uh, and so it says to work with us uh, you need to uh, be able to work consistent with the commitments that we made in our net zero plan so have a plan for getting to no diesel compounds in 2030 um, and we, we're setting out a trajectory for the scale of reduction we would expect from construction the the, the level of uh, the percentage reduction in emissions to build us uh, to build a scheme compared to 2020 and um, to make that real I, I think you have to set a carbon target for a scheme uh, and say given given what you're delivering you only have this budget of carbon to spend uh, and you need to convince us that your design and your the, the materials you plan to use will live within that budget just as we've been talking to our supply chain for years about designing to a financial budget, we now need to design to a carbon budget and demonstrate that we can live within it. Um, so, so I think it's a hugely important part. Um, it it can't you can't just issue a contract and and hope you'll get the right uh, right outcome. So I think the engagement with the sector, uh, the the alignment around this is this is important for us. The health of the industry, for all of us to have jobs and investment in in this vital national asset is dependent on us moving in this direction uh, and getting that kind of hearts and minds point across as two. Malcolm, with your um, procurement uh, brain and your experience of kind of interacting with suppliers on all, all kinds of kind of new types of tender, I guess, well, is there anything that surprised you in this or any anything that you've seen? I, I guess what I'm interested in, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that, sorry, Malcolm. 
So Malcolm, with your procurement head on, I'm interested in your sense, you know, how have you seen the ecosystem around all of this respond? What's your sense of the ability, but also the willingness of contractors to react to it? Have there been any surprises? Like how is that kind of the human behavior around it versus the technical reality of it? How's the human behavior been to you and, and have people responded as you expected? Um, <clears throat> the first time we've contra we've tendered for carbon uh, was lower tens, and it's and it's it's the first big contract as to where we are in evolving our carbon thinking, uh, and it's an ideal project to really push the boundaries because of its scale on something like carbon. Um, and when you have a contract or bidding for work on either the two roads package or the tunnels package they inevitably have chosen and they've, they've, they've got their preferred suppliers there, what I would refer to as their tier two suppliers. So the major asphalt and concrete suppliers have been working with the lower Thames bidders uh, in producing successful bids. And that's how they, you know, they, they understand the products, they understand what they are, the possibilities. Um, we were very pleasantly surprised at the scale of benefit we were getting um, in the lower Thames, lower Thames tendering. But the other thing we added in there, we made very clear that any tender commitments would be written into the contract. So it wasn't a case of make a nice statement and you may not have to deliver it. In the, in the contract, it's very clear, you make a statement and you are gonna be expected to deliver it. Otherwise there will be penalties if you don't deliver against it like any contract would have. But it was, but it was highly successful. And I think my personal view, the reason it was highly successful, we invest a lot of time within the project explaining what we're trying to achieve, why we want to achieve it, and the background, the hearts and minds element to the to the, the bidders. Um, and equally, they they had paired with some highly professional players in the in, in the concrete aggregate asphalt space. Um, and what I've found is all of the major players that we've talked to, none of them have come back and said we're not interested. Uh, the only area that I have a slight worry on is, is the heavy plant um, because it's not as clear as, say, asphalt or concrete. But that, that area is moving as well. And that could be hydrogen, for instance, is, is something we're pushing. Um, but uh, the, the major players, the major global players that understand where the world is going are looking for an element of leadership within the countries they trade. And so where we as a client are leaning in and being very clear, I think we're tapping into a lot of willingness now. It's, it's easy to tender or easier to tender versus actually seeing it physically transpire over the next 5, 10, 15 years. But at this stage, you'd have to say it's looking, it's looking pretty good. And assuming everyone does what they're committing to and the products come through the R&D pipelines and, and we're very clear on our intent and we draw and create the market, I'm pretty comfortable that so far the evidence will be saying we can help to move UK PLC forward um, by the nature of what we buy. As National Highways, we're the biggest single buyer of asphalt, so we can really lean into and lead the asphalt market in the UK. Uh, and we, we have conversations with supply base saying we don't, we don't want to use fresh aggregate, fresh blasted aggregate from quarries. We want to recycle as much as we can. And all of the major asphalt players are, are certainly up for those conversations. So the evidence to me is that people are leaning in. Um, quite heavily because I think everyone understands the importance of the overall carbon agenda and everyone's looking to see what they can do and look at the investment for instance in carbon capture and storage this this is hundreds of millions of pounds of investment being made uh, because businesses can see two things a they look at it's the right thing to do 
and B, they look and say there is a market for it. Therefore, um, there's a very sound business reason to do it. So I'm pretty positive at the moment. I'm seeing the evidence that says, you know, people, people are there. People are definitely up for the challenge. And Steve, can I ask you a question more about the internal response to this kind of work, which is sometimes um, when we when we decarb connect talk to our client base, which is more normally, as you know, the industrials themselves. One one of the kind of interesting areas is, is this, it's not that anyone has reported resistance internally to decarbonisation, but it's more that it's not always aligned with how someone's performance is measured or where their bonuses might come from or you know the kind of regular kpis and i'm wondering has that is that something you have addressed yet is that a conversation what, what's been your thought process around that so i i think our environmental performance is nationally significant uh, uh, around a quarter of uk greenhouse gas emissions come from road vehicles uh, we own 30,000 hectares of unpaved land that is a, an important sanctuary for nature and a corridor for nature. And we have important impacts on our neighbours through local environmental pollution, such as noise and air pollution and so on. So what we do matters on the environment. And I think people connect with that really easily. Um, and it really helps having... Uh, an executive leadership and a board that understand that our license to operate and invest in the strategic road network is dependent on leaning in and being credible on our contribution to improving the environment and, and, and leaving a, a good legacy for future generations. So I, I, I think we, we hear regularly from Nick Harris uh, and quite often a large part of what he talks about is the environment being core to what we do. Uh, we know that uh, we will find it easier to get through planning for our schemes if we've got a strong environmental story. And indeed our performance specification, which is our kind of as a quasi-regulated uh, body, um, we, we're given funding, we're, we're told what, what, what people want us to build, but we're also told what performance they want. And part of that performance specification is environmental performance. And so it is actually uh, part of people's bonus that we deliver against this agenda. Okay, well, coming to my to my wrap up question, then, I mean, whether it's a project that's the next thing that needs cap uh, tackling with this in mind, or the next challenge in this kind of area, what, what do you see as the next gritty step in carbon management for uh, national highways? And Malcolm, I'll come to you first on that is there is it a project that's coming down the path towards you or is it something else that comes to mind when I ask that no I I think from a supply base perspective I I think the challenge is pulling the pulling the technological solutions through um you know if, if you take asphalt if we could recycle more and more asphalt rather than have to use fresh aggregate significant benefits but that's not going to get us there on its own uh, carbon capture is going to be really, really important in the concrete space, but then it's important to many industries in the UK. So I think the real challenge from, a, from my perspective is, is uh, ensuring that there is the pipeline of, of technological products coming through or technology coming through that enable what we're trying to achieve, as well as, as, well as really doing the basics to high standards. Uh, in the sense of we don't we don't waste we minimize the use uh, et cetera et cetera but 
we, we can go so far with sort of focusing on the basics and getting that right, but this is going to require different technologies like carbon capture. Um, that's, that's the challenge because you never know sometimes with some of these technologies. Sometimes you get things going bump in the night. Uh, but providing, providing as a client organisation, we're, we're being very clear what we're trying to achieve and, and people know that we will create the market because of our buying power then I think we'll be able to work through the challenges that, that come. We will rely on some technologies we don't even think about today in 20 or 30 years' time without a shadow of a doubt. And so we've got to be flexible, but it's how do we, how do we create that pull in a, in a solid, longer-term way? And Steve, how about for you? What, again, that same question, what is it that's next on the hit list that kind of feels like a substantial challenge to you to, to get your hands on? So, so I think the... Low terms crossing has uh, led the way in a number of areas, and we've we've tested things. It's generalising that across our portfolio, um, but we have really matured into our into our client role. Uh, for me, what what sticks out is, uh, I guess, how do we make the best use of this national treasure, which is the strategic road network? How do we use it as productively as possible, and therefore? avoid the need for lots of new lane capacity construction it's not that there won't then still be an awful lot of construction to do we've got an aging asset that needs renewal and, and and maintenance but i would like to see us really stretch ourselves to limit the amount of new enhancement that we need to do to meet our purpose which is to connect the country well um both of you, thank you. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, Steve. I Most of the time on our podcast, um, we have either industrials or technology companies, sometimes investors or policy, but I, I really have enjoyed having uh, a true buyer of these kind of green or lower carbon uh, materials because I just, everything we hear from uh, the industrials is there's so far they can go. But ultimately, if the buyers aren't going to step up and if the buyers aren't going to present demand and the buyers aren't going to show their kind of positive intent, it's really hard for them to kind of make the investments that are needed. So I think this was um, great, a useful counterpoint for the podcast and, and really interesting to hear from you both. Thank you very much. At Jano Media, we recognise that great content has the power to create impactful and positive change for lives and society, whether that's video live streams, photography or podcasts. Partnering with us will enable you to harness the power of content to engage, inform and inspire. Reach out to us today.